Welcome to Connecting the Dots with Dan Happel. And today we're going to be talking with Peter Wood about restoring intellectual freedom. Uh, Peter Wood, and I'm going to have to read this. He's got an extensive uh, bio, but he served as the president of the National Association of Scholars for nearly 15 years. Uh, He was an associate professor of anthropology at Boston University, where he also served as the president's chief of staff. Uh, He served as a provost at King's College in New York City. Uh, He is a prolific writer. He has written a number of different books. He is uh, constantly writing white papers. He's being uh, interviewed on television and uh, on radio. And I'm really, really privileged to have Peter Wood as a guest this morning. Peter, welcome to the program. You're in great company here because you're finally (laughs) amongst a bunch of patriots. And I know you're uh, amongst them quite often, but uh, I have to tell you the uh, uh, Patriot Soapbox Network really appreciates you and welcomes you to the program. Well, thank you very much. I'm glad to be here, Dan. Well, we've we've had a little uh, little communication uh, offline, or not not necessarily offline, but off air. And uh, I know that you are a truth seeker, like I am, and that's what this is all about. We have seen our country uh, change so much over the last fifty or sixty years because of all the propaganda all the the crazy indoctrination that's uh, taken over our university systems. And that's what you're going to be talking about today is uh, that that really what's behind all the propaganda, all the lies, all the noise, and all the political correctness, the 1619 woke nonsense that is taking over our country uh, through the universities and how we're going to fight that. So, Peter, uh, that's a kind of a lead in. You take it from there because I'm going to give you a wonderful opportunity to air so many of the things that are going on in the universities. Well, that's a dangerous thing to do. I'm a college professor and I can fill the lecture hall for a couple hours of nonstop chatter, but I'll do my best to make this a conversation, not a a lecture. Um, 
If I had to give a one word answer to the question of why we are where we are, it's communism. Um, communists have been working to establish themselves in America for more than half a century, and they have succeeded. Right now, we're calling that wokeness. And okay, there's, there's some value in having a distinct word for the latest phase of the uh, communist quasi-revolution in America. Um, but if you want to take the longer historical perspective, this goes back to basically the days after the Russian Revolution and eventually the, the theorists of Marxism who found their way to American universities and began to teach their doctrines, uh, especially in schools of education. So we now have a national system of education from kindergarten through graduate school in which much of the uh, worldview of Marxists is embedded. It's so well embedded that a lot of the people who absorb it have no idea that what they are absorbing is a set of doctrines that uh, was set forth to overturn both a, a free economy, a, 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 a civilization founded on Christianity for the most part, uh, and the whole idea of America as a nation that could enable individuals to thrive by giving them freedom. Now, those were in the uh, target zone of the Marxists from early on in the 20th century. Uh, over time and through changes of circumstances, they've gained the kind of ground where they now uh, command the heights, try to get through college these days without having been battered constantly by the assumptions of a radical leftist point of view, and you'll probably be relegated to maybe three or four very small colleges uh, that are off the mainstream. And, and that's where we are. So I'll take that as my opening gambit. Well, that's a, that's a good opener. And of course, uh, we've, we've been dealing with uh, Marxism through uh, different progressive programs for, like you say, over a century. But it really took hold in the United States uh, with the tax-exempt foundations putting piles of money into academia. And of course, when they did that, they did it with the understanding that they would have a seat on the board of regents or trustees at that university and be able to, uh, let's say, influence programs that were going to be taught at the university. And of course, uh, you know, that's one thing about crony capitalists, uh, you know, people like the Rockefellers and the Carnegies, and they understood capitalism, but they understood how to manipulate it for their advantage, and then very jealously tried to keep everybody else that was a real true entrepreneur uh, from getting access to that system. And that's why they hated uh, free markets the way they did, because they wanted crony capitalism. They wanted to be able to determine. Uh, they were monopolists. They wanted to determine who was going to control things. And then, of course, um, 1923, uh, at the height of the inflation in Germany that the uh, 
the uh, Weimar Republic was uh, seeing the effects after World War One of paying all the war uh, all the war costs uh, according to the Versailles, Versailles Treaty. Uh, anyway, right at the peak of that, that's when the Frankfurt School got started in Germany, and it was booted out of the country not by Hitler. They he's been. Uh, he's been accused of being the one that booted it out of the country, but, but it was actually under uh, uh, Hindenburg that the uh, the Marxists were sent packing because communism was getting to be a real problem in Germany. And uh, they landed at uh, Columbia University in 1931, and it's been a downhill slide from there. I didn't mean to take over the conversation, but I wanted to put a little historical context to it. Uh, and that's what you're going to be talking about is how successful uh, the Frankfurt School people were at uh, basically taking owner over uh, the university system and the teachers' colleges. And that's where we're at today is that that whole system uh, finally took over the country. Well, um, we probably should be focusing more on the uh, relatively recent events. But yes, the arrival of the Frankfurt School in the U.S. was the beginning of what we've now learned to call uh, postmodernism, the idea that there really isn't any truth, that it's all determined by uh, who's in power, and the, uh, the, the poison of uh, the Frankfurt School has been well documented. Now, I don't, I don't know that there are very many academics these days who consider themselves to be Frankfurtians. Uh, that's several generations back. But their legacy has survived in uh, probably its its first really Americanized version, were the uh, students for a democratic society and the New Left in the 1960s, who had uh, read their uh, Horkheimer and Adorno and Marcuse especially, and were uh, intent on uh, beginning what we've learned to call the long march through the institutions. These were gradualists. They didn't think that they could gain uh, power over America all in one go. The, the big turn by the uh, students for the democratic society in, in the 1960s was the idea that Marxists of the previous generation had failed by thinking that they could radicalize the proletariat whereas America's so-called proletariat generally belonged to highly effective unions and were pretty good with the American system. So they shifted their attention from trying to get uh, the workers of the world to unite to thinking that, well, we can take over the universities. There's colleges and universities in every state, in every city of any size, and, and many smaller towns. And if you can get hold of this system, you will have access to the minds of the next generation. Um, they were thinking very clearly and very deeply about how to foment a revolution that wouldn't take place uh, in an instant, but which would work itself out over the course of a couple generations. Uh, some of the uh, fringes of that movement went kind of wild, like the, uh, the weathermen who started blowing up buildings and killing police and each other, but that didn't last. What lasted was their ability to 
uh, inculcate into the teachers in schools of education the idea that America is really a pretty rotten place and that if one looks around the world, one can see all this terrible suffering and oppression that in one way or another can be traced back to the influence of the United States. And it's up to you teachers to go out there and convince the next generation that that has to stop. So we ended up with a, uh, a way of getting this message to children at the most vulnerable age, where they have no capacity to doubt what their teachers are telling them. They have no independent basis of judgment, and they're not out reading other history books. They take what their teachers tell them as uh, an unquestioned authority at a certain age. Later on, they'll become uh, skeptical and doubtful. But by that point, they're already captured, and even their doubts are going to be doubts expressed in the vein of whether the uh, uh, criticisms of the U.S. have gone far enough and we now need to go further. Well, that played itself out in a number of interesting ways. I think uh, uh, to name just a few of them, the uh, civil rights movement got radicalized into a black power movement. It also got implanted in our colleges and universities in the form of uh, racial preferences, affirmative action that allowed into colleges significant numbers of students who were not prepared for any kind of rigorous academic curriculum. Now, one might think that the logical answer to that is, oh, let's let in the students who are capable of uh, dealing with a rigorous curriculum. Uh, let's make sure that our teachers are uh, capable of bringing students along to the point where they need to be. But no, those were not the answers that we got out of this. The answers were, if the curriculum is too hard, let's soften it up a little bit. And so we began in 1970s and following this uh, uh, creation of what uh, one academic has called the dumbest generation. Well, now it's the dumbest generation times three, but it's a, uh, a slip into this idea that anything that's too hard probably isn't worth studying. Um, what, what the Marxists get out of that is that if you have reduced the standards of critical thinking, of careful analysis to the level where people cannot tell the difference between the truth and the lie or between a statement of opinion and a statement of fact, you've got them exactly where you want them to be. Now, there are plenty of uh, outcomes of this. One of the ones that um, concerns me a lot has been the readiness of that generation to climb on the uh, climate change train. This, this idea that uh, the world faces existential peril if we don't stop burning fossil fuels and taking other drastic steps to uh, reduce the amount of carbon and other gases in our carbon dioxide and other gases in our atmosphere, we're all doomed. Now we have a, a Greta Thunberg generation where by students just unquestionably believe that the world is on the precipice of this disaster that will sweep us all away. Um, well, a number of things could be said about this, and maybe you'll want to question me on it, I don't know, but the, there really is no such disaster looming. The science doesn't support this at all. Crooked scientists go with it, naive scientists do, scientists who get their money from government grants and know which side that's going to pay on. But the, the truth of this matter is that 
this is a, a grand delusion. And, and what does it do? For the young people, it prepares them for the sense that the world is in such peril that they are doomed and they might as well go all in in some kind of great reach for a solution that will solve everything. Now, for some, that means these radical environmental steps, we're going to uh, get all of the electricity we need by windmills and solar and so on. But for others, it goes even weirder, as in we now see these students uh, busily supporting uh, terrorists in the Middle East. Why in the world? Well, you know, there's a long discussion to be had about that, but the environmental movement uh, shades into support for Hamas. Um, it also shades into all sorts of uh, willingness to tolerate things that free Americans wouldn't tolerate. Uh, election mischief, uh, the readiness of our country to turn a blind eye to the breakdown of law and order in our cities and the willingness to uh, allow people to, to shoplift and mug and uh, create urban chaos, um, accepted as a price for what we now call social justice. So I'm, I'm throwing a whole lot of things on the table there. Uh, radical environmentalism, support for terrorists, the breakdown of law and order, um, the, the uh, demand for racial reparations, and so on and so on. It's all, however, unified as part of, of one thing. Uh, that one thing is basically, I hate America. We've got to do away with this uh, oppressive Western civilization. We've got to prepare ourselves for a, a wonderful new utopia that might exist after we see the uh, repeal of the Industrial Revolution and the return to something like Stone Age economics. Yeah, that's uh, Peter, that's a, a perfect uh, uh, description because what they're talking about and, and what these young people are being uh, indoctrinated into believing is that uh, free markets and uh, industrialization improving culture, improving civilization by uh, modernization, that that's wrong. And that we need to go back to this austere, totally government-controlled lifestyle that tells us when we can have things, what we can have, when we can eat, where we can go, everything about our life. Bingo, there's the takeover of Marxism. Well, you know, Marxism likes to pretend that it's going to liberate people, but all it has ever done is enslave people. Uh, the, the, the dupes of Marxism think that by going along with this, uh, they're going to get lots and lots of free stuff but that free stuff comes at the cost of all of their personal liberty. And uh, there we are, we're, we're living through this right now. Uh, if I had been saying this 10 or 15 years ago, it would have been uh, to an incredulous audience of Americans, but Americans I think are now getting a, uh, a real sense of that this is, this is happening. This is what will be, what we will be facing for the duration of our lives this this battle for whether we keep our free society or uh, hand it over to those sort of deep state agents of marxism who want to rule our lives 
Well, I, I laugh about that, Peter, because um, I started talking about UN Agenda 21 about 20 years ago and did a program on the links between uh, Agenda 21 and communism and how it was all directly connected. The people who were behind Agenda, uh, Agenda 21 were also the people that were the, the heads of Marxist and communist countries. Um, and uh, everybody looked at me like I had three eyeballs when I do these programs. Uh, but yet, over a period of time, everything that I said then is proving itself to be true. The uh, links to communism, though, they they uh, academia has failed to pull that connection together. Obviously, you have. Right. Well, I, I think academia has not just failed, it's deliberately turned away from uh, wanting to address what communism actually is. And you know, look around colleges and universities for honest courses on Marxism, ones that will tell you what the path of Marxism was as it gained power first in Russia and then in many other nations. Everywhere it has come to power, we've ended up with a small elite uh, dictating policies that were uh, genocidal to the to the population, whether it was Pol Pot in Cambodia or Mao in China or Stalin in Russia, killing millions of people is not just an accident of Marxism. It's part of what Marxism delivers. Why does it deliver that? Well, it has to eliminate anybody who doubts its approach. And it also has to keep expropriating their property because it doesn't have the capacity to produce economic advance on its own. So uh, killing people is one way to get hold of their stuff and redistribute it. Marxism is mostly about redistribution, but it's a parasite. It can only get stuff to redistribute by taking it from people who have and killing those people or putting them out of the way, maybe in labor camps if you're a Uyghur in China these days. But the, the whole idea here is that Marxism uses as its method of governance terror. It organizes terror efficiently, far more efficiently than any other uh, political system that we've ever seen. Uh, the use of terror to uh, take a population into a position of passivity so that it will accept what is happening to it and not get in the way of the efforts to liquidate populations that are awkward, like say the kulaks in Ukraine, which was started under Lenin and completed under uh, Stalin. Uh, we see these, uh, these efforts around the world where this particular system eventually is paid for in blood now, has that happened in the U.S.? Well, we're not that far away. We had our summer riots in 2020, the, the George Floyd riots. And, and uh, again, we found our government simply standing down and letting our cities burn uh, because supposedly that was the reparation. Well, it was a reparation partly in property, but partly also in blood. There were about two dozen people killed in those riots without anybody being brought to justice, let alone arrested. Uh, so that, that readiness to use violence to get its way uh, hasn't disappeared from Marxism American style. We don't see it in quite as blatant a form because the Marxists haven't declared themselves as our ruling entity just yet. 
but they're well on their way to doing it. Um, I think the January 6 riots are an example of this. Those riots were not really riots. They were a staged operation by agents of our government trying to entrap people. Um, again, uh, people died, not a whole lot of people, but several people. And the uh, willingness, again, to uh, take life in order to advance the cause is justified over and over again by Marxists who, you know, what was it? Uh, Lenin's line that you, you can't make a revolution without breaking a few eggs. We're all eggs. We are the people who are going to be broken in order to get this regime installed. And it's useful to Marxists to have uh, sort of uh, uh, puppet leaders, people who uh, appear to be benign in some sort of way or perhaps incompetent. And those people stand up while the, the real work is being done by their puppet masters behind the scenes. So um, that's where we are. Well, that's, um, that, that's interesting. You talk about the puppet masters. Um, I, I see the environmental movement being brought into this Marxist scheme as a way to... Uh, I guess, introduce genocide and justify it as being necessary for the salvation of Gaia, of Earth, uh, that humans are the one number one enemy of humanity is humans. That's under this crazy system. And they're all uh, big followers of Thomas Malthus and these Malthusian theories of uh, you know, we've got a, uh, a finite number of resources and humans are going to take all those resources and destroy them. Uh, cool. Anyway, I'll, I'll let you go from there. Uh, there's a professor at Middlebury College named uh, Bill McKibben, who is a radical environmentalist, but he's also a very good persuasive writer. Uh, Bill McKibben believes and has stated in his writing several times that the world's population needs to be reduced by 90%. 90%, that's how many people have to be eliminated from the globe in order to get back to the world that he would like to have, which is basically a pre-industrial one in which we survive by subsistence farming. Um, I don't know how many of the uh, college kids who consider themselves green get the idea that nine out of 10 people have to be killed in order to get their way. But a fair number of people are certainly on board with the idea that eliminating human life is a positive good. So we should have very liberal abortion laws or no abortion laws at all. We should permit infanticide, at least up to some few months after the birth of a child. We shouldn't worry too much about the destruction of energy resources or the prohibition of fossil fuels in the third world where without access to cheap energy millions of people will die um, all of that uh, embrace of you know Mal malthus viewed this uh, uh, dismal situation as he imagined it in which uh, the population outgrew the ability of the world to feed it that's a terrible thing. He wasn't happy about it. But what in the hands of today's uh, uh, climate change terror establishment, it's a good thing. So we can finally get those noisome people off the face of the globe. 
know, I, I spend a fair amount of time reading science on these matters. The latest worry, uh, as of this morning, is that a, a, a giant rat that lives on an island in the South Pacific faces a dismal future because the natives on the island, this is uh, in the Solomon Islands, I believe, uh, are logging it. And the big rats like to live in the jungle where the logs are. So by logging it, their habitat is being destroyed and the world faces the danger of uh, the giant rats disappearing. They were only discovered four or five years ago, but, but that kind of environmental catastrophe just can't be tolerated. So instead of getting rid of the rats, we should be getting rid of ourselves. Well, uh, Peter, they need to send those rats to the DC swamp uh, <laughs> because they'd fit in quite well there. <laughs> they might. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, no, I, the environmental movement is so far from actual science. I mean, they have completely destroyed it. And as you say, uh, the scientists that they've got on board are the ones that are getting government grants, and they won't get those grants unless they support the status quo, unless they support the, the uh, environmental uh, activist movement. That's the only way they get their money. And I, I think of some of the crazy crap that's happened with the hockey stick and uh, some of the other things that they've gone with. Right. Um, well, Michael Mann, the uh, inventor of the hockey stick graph, which purported to show that uh, uh, temperatures were rising in a excess, <laughs> get that word. Exponentially. Yeah. Hey, thank you. I'm, my age <laughs> is showing. Uh, well, Michael Mann is a man who likes to file lawsuits and uh, he has been uh, tormenting anybody who criticizes the accuracy of his work with uh, lawsuits that go on for years and years and years. He's got his own funding stream behind that. So I'm going to avoid saying anything about Michael Mann, unless I end up in a court for the rest of my life as well. But I will say that the, the idea that there has been any unusual fluctuation in the world's temperature uh, rests on the flimsiest of evidence, uh, manipulation of data and graphs that has brought us to a point where we, we talk as though the science is on the side of the uh, people who expect a catastrophe. We have had now, I believe it is five reports from the, uh, the International Panel on Climate Change. Uh, several of them relied on Michael Mann's graph to draw their point. That's since been thrown aside by even the International Panel on Climate Change. They continue down this path of saying that the scientific evidence is on their side. It's not. Um, we have hundreds of legitimate climate scientists who have traced what we know about our temperature grade and are, um, you know, let's say they're not all in agreement with each other, which I'd say is a good thing. It's when science acts as though there is a settled narrative and we all know what the facts are that you begin to worry because humans 
will always be looking for the cracks and flaws in each other's work unless they're on board a, a political program. And that's really what the, uh, the climate, so-called climate science is all about. It's corralling people to agree basically in order to get funding for their own research and to lead more comfortable lives. But there, there are other elements that bear mention as well. One is that the, uh, the capture of science in the universities via government funding works hand in glove with the nation's regulatory regime. And it's not just climate science, almost any area in which the government wishes to exert control or uh, issue a uh, a kind of demand over private property uh, is filtered through the efforts to uh, conjure up science. Science paid for, they know what they want, they put out the requests for proposals and the proposals they fund are always the ones which are dedicated to uh, producing science, so-called science that uh, uh, speaks with their interests and their voice. Now. Um, my organization, the National Association of Scholars, has been doing a lot of work on this area for quite a while. Uh, we found uh, things which, if you join this conversation, you uh, find very eye-opening. It's, it's believed that somewhere up around 60% or more of published scientific papers uh, are irreproducible. That is, the, the science in them uh, has been so corrupted that other scientists working with the same materials and the same procedures cannot get the same results. That tells you that science is no good. Um, we have a ton of that. It, it backs things like our transition to electric cars, for example. There is no good scientific reason why we should be spending uh, twice the cost of, of producing an automobile that used uh, fossil fuels produce an electric vehicle that might well blow up on you, uh, but we can justify those kinds of expenses by making extraordinary claims about the dangers from automobile exhaust. And there we go. It's, it's science paid for by the government to say what the government wants it to say. Why does all this matter? Well, Marxism considers itself to be a science. No one else really considers it to be at all science or even scientific. Why does Marxism want to be um, the voice of science? Because for the last several centuries, science has been on the high end of intellectual prestige. Uh, when done right, it gives us uh, steam engines and then internal combustion engines. It gives us the industrial revolution. It cures diseases. We know that science has been immensely important in the progress of the West for the last several centuries. Um, so science has prestige. What do the Marxists want? They want the authority and prestige without having the, uh, the actual burden of having to prove what they're doing by means of rigorous experimentation. And, and us, you know, the, the beautiful example of Marxist science is Lysenkoism. Lysenko was the, uh, the biologist in uh, the Soviet Union favored by Stalin who thought that uh, he could make crops grow out of season and 
by using environmental triggers the way Marxism says everything is environmental, while Lysenko did away with genetics, produced massive crop famines in, in the Soviet Union until the government finally got around to saying his, uh, his work hadn't passed a test. But Lysenkoism is, broadly speaking, uh, what Marxist science looks like. And we have our own modern-day version of Lysenkoism in the climate science establishment, all those colleges and universities around the country, where it's not just people uh, in the climate department, but in, in physics and chemistry and biology, especially, where uh, they keep conjuring up more and more, let's say, giant rats, uh, all the threats that uh, the world faces because we have failed uh, once again to take seriously the, the dire danger of climate change. I'm sure the listeners remember at least some of the many predictions of doom that have come and gone. The idea that by 2010 we would be underwater, by 2012 we would be extinct. Uh, each those deadlines keep changing, but the, the tactic never changes. Uh, they just keep redoing the calendar to when doomsday will be. And uh, we're, we're playing that game just endlessly. Why? Well, you know, the only way I can see it is that a new generation comes along and that doesn't remember all the failed predictions of the past. So let's scare them too with new predictions. You'll never grow up to have what your parents had because uh, of climate change, the, the seas will rise, the glaciers will melt, uh, crops will cease to grow, we will have huge droughts that kill off our productive agriculture, uh, new diseases will emerge, animals that we love will disappear, the polar bears will be gone, and on and on and on and on and on. All these uh, prognostications which never, ever come true. They won't come true because there just isn't any actual sound reason to think they will. Yeah. <laughs> Peter, um, you know, you, you mentioned the, uh, um, the, the scientific basis. <laughs> they talk about something uh, called peer review. <laughs> huh. uh, I love that because the peer review, the only way it'll support this nonsense is that they'll get uh, fellow travelers that uh, that they know that are friends of theirs that will uh, reaffirm what they're saying in their writing, in their documents. And that's the only kind of peer review they get. If they actually uh, put it to a rigorous scientific uh, review, it doesn't it doesn't pass. It never does. Uh, that's true. I, I think there are ways in which, we could go about ensuring that we get better science. Um, one of them involves pre-registering your scientific procedures. That is, you say what you're going to do, and you register that in an external place where you can't then go change it. Then you do your experiments, and the experiments either work or they don't work. Now, the reason I bring that up is that one of the standard manipulations of science that is uh, used by these jokers involves uh, a technical term is p-hacking. Uh, it involves uh, you do an experiment, 
And whatever the results are, you then frame a hypothesis after the fact and say that your experiment shows the accuracy of that hypothesis. It can get more complicated than that, but the basic picture here is that instead of following the scientific method, they involve this uh, technique of manipulating the results to get something that looks scientific but isn't. Um, every experiment produces a range of results. They're not all exactly the same. <clears throat> There's many good reasons for that. You know, slight discrepancies in the materials you're using or the time of day is can produce these little changes. But the that randomness can be artfully manipulated by people using statistics. And that's pretty much how we get to these uh, extraordinary claims of which um, uh, the climate change stuff is the best example, but far from the only example. We, we end up with uh, the, uh, the FDA, the uh, Environmental Protection Agency, and so on, using their authority as a instrument of the state to impose all sorts of rules and regulations on us. I'll be a little bit historical about this. Um, back in the 1950s, after we had exploded first the atom bomb and then the hydrogen bomb, there was a lot of concern about how dangerous radioactivity might be. And radioactivity for sure can be dangerous. In high dosages, it kills people. In uh, less than high dosages, it can cause cancer and other ailments. So yeah, we should be concerned about radioactivity and using it wisely. But they turned this problem over to the National Academy of Sciences, which by the way, is another government body. And they came up with a study which produced something called the linear no threshold standard. Uh, I can explain that. Uh, no threshold means that if something is dangerous, it's dangerous down to the most infinitesimal level possible. So uh, imagine um, if you were to take an arsenic sandwich and chew it down, <clears throat> it's probably not very good for you. It might well kill you. If you take a smaller amount of arsenic, it's probably going to make you sick. What if you took just one molecule of arsenic? Well, there's probably at least one molecule of arsenic in the food you eat every day because molecules are pretty tiny things. No threshold when it came to radioactivity meant that it's dangerous all the way down. And that's the standard that the government officially adopted um, and it has a lot to do with how we regulate to this day. But the more interesting part of this for me is that the linear no threshold standard was accepted by the scientific establishment in Washington as to apply to all sorts of things besides radiation. So uh, as I, I said, arsenic, but imagine any environmental contaminant uh, in large quantities, really bad for you, perhaps disastrous. We don't wanna go live in Love Canal, if you remember that story, but if you, keep chopping it down to tinier and tinier pieces, the no threshold standard makes no sense at all. Uh, we live in the real world where all things are mixed up together and you can't help but be exposed to contaminants of some sort, but at such levels that they probably are completely harmless. Why does this matter? Because as the instruments of science have gotten better and better at discerning tiny things, 
the no threshold standard has allowed the government to regulate us all the way down. If it chooses to regulate something, it can find some dangerous aspect of it and using the linear no threshold approach, come up with the claim that, oh, we got to control this too. Ultimately, it gives the government the license to control absolutely anything it wants to control. Mm -hmm. um, as I said, it goes back to the 1950s when the National Academy of Sciences issued what we now know as a scientific fact was a false finding. And that false finding was then treated as the, uh, the lever by which the government could get its hands on all sorts of other things. Um, again, I think I'm wandering into the, uh, the realm of the academic lecture giving his uh, classroom mm -hmm. his opinions on things. So I'll hand it back to you. Well, I, you know, when what, what you're talking about, and I was uh, smiling as you were saying that, because the political and the scientific come together in government. And a perfect example of what you're talking about is the EPA in 2010, under the Obama administration, listing CO2 as a dangerous gas. Exactly. Uh, that's a perfect example of it. Right, that, that endangerment finding on CO2 was completely unjustified, but it still stands. It's not, it's not been overturned. And because CO2, which is a natural part of our atmosphere, it, it's about 2% of uh, what's out there on Earth quite naturally, uh, is now thought of as something dangerous that has to be regulated. Well, you can't regulate it out of existence. It's always been there and it always will be there. Um, what you can regulate are the human activities that put more of it there. And are we putting more of it there? Yeah, for sure we are. Uh, the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere was uh, about, about 150 years ago estimated at uh, something like 150 parts per million. Uh, I challenge anybody to go out and find 150 parts per million of anything, but it's now up over 300 parts per million. And, and why is that? Mostly because uh, we learned to harness fossil fuels, coal and then oil, and we burned it, and that puts carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Well, a doubling of carbon and dioxide in the atmosphere sounds really scary until you realize that we're talking about the doubling of very small amounts. Um, and we also have the problem that it turns out that carbon dioxide in the atmosphere does uh, play that role of what they call a greenhouse gas. It elevates the temperature slightly, but it does so only up to a certain saturation level after which it doesn't do that at all. So. Uh, does it matter that we have 300 and some parts per million of carbon dioxide in our atmosphere now? Not really. Uh, the, the plants are happy about it. They breathe carbon dioxide. If we didn't have carbon dioxide, there'd be no plants and there'd be no people. But um, the reality of this is that we're well within his, the range of natural carbon dioxide fluctuation in the atmosphere. In the, the past, before humans were walking around, there was a lot more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. It goes away from time to time. All those uh, limestone rocks that exist all over the United States 
that's where the carbon dioxide goes. It gets turned back into minerals, goes back into the earth. Well, and, and, and Peter, with the uh, carbon dioxide, uh, even scientists admit that uh, the lion's share of carbon dioxide comes from the natural environment, comes from the oceans, comes from things like plankton, and we're actually in a carbon desert right now, a carbon dioxide desert, because uh, back during the uh, dinosaur era, uh, uh, carbon dioxide was more like uh, uh, 1,500 parts per million. Yes. And that's when we had trees that were 200 feet tall. That's where the redwood forests are kind of a, a throwback to that time. But we had the, probably the, the most uh, a lush environment in the world when that dinosaur era happened. And it happened because of plankton. Yeah, well, I, I'm among those who are perfectly happy that the dinosaurs went away and that uh, God brought us onto the scene. But uh, yes, in the past, uh, and not just in the time of the dinosaurs, the amount of carbon dioxide in our atmosphere was much, much higher than it is now. It wasn't deadly to life. It made life flourish in many ways. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, we're not going to come anywhere near uh, turning Earth into Jurassic Park. So uh, we can mm -hmm. keep that worry to rest. No, that's certainly not one of my concerns. Well, um, we I've got some people who are uh, probably listening to this program today. I've got a number of concerned parents who have watched the uh, DEI, woke, all this crazy stuff hit their Christian private schools. Hmm. And it's part of the program, the federal government, uh, naturally, because of their mandates, are pushing a lot of this stuff into private uh, Christian schools. That's how invasive this uh, philosophy, this Marxist philosophy has become. Um, I'd, I'd love for you to uh, talk about, we'll get back to the uh, how this whole program has kind of flourished under certain kinds of leadership. And, oh, okay. Yeah. Um, uh, I'm a church-going Christian, um, but I live and work in New York City, uh, which means that my church, which is among the more conservative churches in the city, is one in which uh, I know full well that most of my fellow parishioners are, are quite on board with the uh, radical environmentalist view of things. They're quite on board with the diversity, equity, inclusion things. Uh, I know this in part because uh, I, I attend a small group, you know, about a dozen of my fellow parishioners we meet on a weekday, once a week, and talk about stuff. And um, it's kind of continues to be a jaw-dropping exercise for me in which I learned that uh, people who should know better, uh, know better on theological grounds, if nothing else, are kind of just naively taken up by the culture that is it's all around them. It's what their friends and neighbors believe. So they accept it as true. And like most people, they're busy. They don't have the time to go out and independently investigate 
whether these things rest on a solid footing. Uh, so they basically take it in stride. Uh, the ministry, well, they resist it, but not with great vigor. It doesn't seem to them to be as central an issue as uh, uh, dealing with the, the evil in the hearts of men everywhere. So I get it that our, our Christian schools are no more exempt from the cultural pollution than anything anyone else is. You, you can't go on to the internet or go on to what used to be TV or read a book without finding this stuff is just uh, saturating this. Uh, our most, not most, but many of our popular movies these days sort of take it for granted that these uh, kind of cultural ailments are real, that uh, uh, climate change is coming, we're probably going to all be doomed by that. Favorite theme of our uh, creators of literature, fiction, and movies is the uh, post-apocalyptic world. And what was that apocalypse? Well, it had something to do with our failure to get hold of uh, the sources of greenhouse gases and curtail them in time. Um, so it's everywhere. It saturates us. It, it is not simply that uh, the uh, regulatory regime in Washington has imposed this everywhere. It imposes it in many places, but uh, parallel to what the regulatory regime is doing is what the culture is doing. The culture has made this stuff uh, normative. Uh, the, the Overton window, what you can say, has closed on conservatives and the prevailing view, which people who are not uh, uh, sort of, what do we call ourselves? Uh, it would be nice to say that we're the ones who are woke, but that's got the wrong intonation to it. But then we're awake. <laughs> yeah, the, those who have been awakened to all this mischief can look at this and say, well, hold on a moment. Did that really happen? Is that what the evidence actually says? Uh, did Derek Chauvin really murder uh, George Floyd? Uh, the autopsy didn't say so, at least the first one didn't. Uh, mm -hmm. Did the uh, people on January 6th really engage in an insurrection? Um, you pick the topic on which there is a, a seeming consensus of uh, uh, received opinion, what most people think is true, um, which may well not be true. Um, and how do you find a way to convince people that it's not true? Well, maybe you come on uh, Dan Happel's program and talk about it or be among the listeners to Dan Happel's program. But um, there are enormous numbers of people that never receive this information. They never hear it uh, to the extent they run into it. They brush it off as the, uh, the work of the uh, uh, right wing cranks or the disinformation industry of the Trumpian right. There's various terms that can be thrown out there that are meant to discredit anybody who tries to exercise independent judgment. Um, I try pretty hard to steer clear of political endorsements of individuals or parties. I want to have my independence intact so that I can take a look at whatever is being put out as an authoritative statement and ask myself, is it true? 
how can I find out whether it's true? Where do I look for evidence that isn't contaminated by people who want to manipulate me into agreeing with them? Um, very early days of the, uh, the COVID epidemic, uh, when the topic of masks was being uh, thrown around, um, and we knew that these viral particles were infinitesimally small, and to think that a cloth mask was going to prevent them from getting into your lungs or getting from your lungs back out into the air made zero scientific sense. Um, in the very early days, even Dr. Fauci said it didn't make sense, but then he changed his mind. And with government authority, we were all mandated to wear masks. Um, and my goodness, we did. Uh, I, I would go uh, running on Riverside Park here in New York City without a mask, because you can't really run with a mask over your face. And uh, little old ladies would jump up and scream at me for going out there breathing air rather than breathing through a mask. Um, the, the hysteria, I think that's the right word, that overtook Americans was just astonishing on the basis of no evidence at all that these things worked and abundant evidence that they were meaningless uh, people wore these as badges of conformity to our new health regime. <laughs> Bingo. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, I had masks because if I wanted to get on an airplane or step out into places where they were absolutely required, I would put one on. Um, my office is here on Madison Avenue, and during COVID, the city was officially shut down, but I was a resistor, and I smuggled myself into my office each day. Um, one day I went out the front door of my office building and a young couple was coming down the street towards me. Unusual to see anybody around. Again, New York was pretty much a ghost town at that point. So uh, we saw each other. They were wearing masks. I wasn't. The man threw his girlfriend, wife, against the wall and covered her with his body as I went past. <laughs> oh, that's hysterical. It was, it was a sort of Sir Walter Raleigh moment that he was willing to sacrifice his life by being the person I walked past. And uh, I'm, so I had many such experiment, experiences, but, but it left me with the idea, which I've not been able to get rid of since that Right now, the primary characteristic of Americans as a people is gullibility. Uh, they will buy whatever uh, uh, trash the government is putting in front of them. Maybe they will pride themselves on being uh, smarter than other people or more independent minded, but they're not. They're conformists who will accept this uh, nonsense and I asked myself, well, how did they get that way? Because Americans long prided themselves on being independent-minded people who made their own choices. And that takes us straight back into the world of education. We have trained up generations of people now to accept the word of authority and the, by the government and other official bodies or by scientists um, and to uh, relinquish whatever capacity they had to say, Prove it to me, show it. Um, the 
world of science has become a kind of world of uh, mysteries and voodoo to them, where if it's said in the name of science, it must be true. Whereas real science says, you've got to show it, prove it. Um, we've all been through this. I'm sure you have your stories and everybody I know has stories, but in my world, uh, uh, being in New York, I'm uh, in a universe where I see most of the people around me as uh, helplessly gullible or ready to accept the stories that they are handed. It begins to break apart now just a little bit with uh, the anecdote to conformity is fear. Uh, because we have a Soros prosecutor here in New York, uh, Alvin Bragg, who doesn't believe in the enforcement of law, or at least enforcement of law against uh, uh, anybody but conservatives. Um, we have rampant uh, uh, theft. Stores have to put everything behind plexiglass. Most of them that managed to survive COVID are now facing, can you survive uh, living in anarchy? Uh, we have people in our subways who uh, attack with great frequency. Uh, murders are a now common thing. This is murders of strangers throwing people on tracks in front of speeding trains and this kind of stuff. That has changed the atmosphere a little bit. That is, when we're told that America is as safe as it's ever been, it's crazy. We've lived through an America that used to be a whole lot safer than what we've got now. What we have now are criminals everywhere. Uh, I can go out on the street and watch people shooting up drugs while the police just stroll past and do nothing. Uh, it's, a, it's a world in which uh, an unimaginable level of lawlessness and disregard for fellow man has uh, taken over. And that's, that's New York, but it's also Chicago. It's, it's all our big cities. Uh, wherever you go, they have this, uh, this element of uh, anarchy, which is now, of course, celebrated by some. This is the, the great freedom that Marxism promises us, the, the freedom to be a, a drug-addicted prostitute wandering around uh, the slums of a decayed city. So there we are. Mm -hmm and living off of the uh, largesse of the productive class. Uh, that, that's, that's, of course, the key to the whole thing, is to figure out a way to mine the resources of the productive people so that you can uh, redistribute that wealth. And that's exactly why they've targeted the United States for so long, because we had... You said something earlier. We had a uh, a scientific basis of the Industrial Revolution, but the part that the esoteric part of that scientific basis is we also had something that you can't put a scientific uh, name to, and that's entrepreneurship. Hmm. We had the ability as free Americans to be able to do things because we could, not because uh, maybe there wasn't a uh, an economic incentive, maybe there was, but we had the ability because we had the freedom to think outside the box. What they want to create is a box that doesn't allow us to think outside of it. 
Yeah, that, that's that regulatory regime again. If you want to start a business now, you have to get 10 different licenses up the wazoo and permission from neighborhood groups. And, uh, you know, it becomes um, almost impossible to uh, invent something in your garage and then take it public without finding yourself uh, having to face all sorts of government restrictions. And then on top of that, we have our uh, legal regime as well, in which uh, if you somehow succeed in getting past those hurdles, then you will be uh, sued for all sorts of imaginary uh, infractions against people who used your project and product and uh, didn't feel good the next day. Um, so it's become an anti-entrepreneurial society, at least at the, the the level of sort of major invention. We do get entrepreneurs here. Again, I, this is my New York City experience, but uh, I can go out on the street. The, the, the coffee shops and bodegos are now mostly gone, but there's lots and lots of street carts. Those are small scale entrepreneurs of uh, uh, people who come here from uh, the, the Middle East, from India, from South America, and have the gumption to try to make something of themselves. They are far from the majority. Uh, the majority is about a block and a half down Madison Avenue at uh, a, a big old hotel that our Mayor Adams has turned into a, uh, a place of sanctuary for uh, several hundred illegal immigrants. And again, um, the streets here were unpopulated during COVID, but now they're thickly populated by people who've uh, joined us from Venezuela and Guatemala and El Salvador and Sharapas uh, uh, and other states in the southern part of Mexico. Um, so, uh, you know, there too, it's a government plan. Uh, these are not immigrants in the sense of the people who uh, sought for years legal entry into our country. There are people who've taken advantage of Biden's open border, and uh, they are living rather nicely at this point with large supplements of money, with free housing. Uh, the, uh, the incentives to come here and break our laws and live off the fat of the land have never been greater. And you know, why is this happening? Uh, it's a mystery I haven't been able to plumb entirely. And clearly, there is some incentive for the Democratic Party to bring in legions of new voters, uh, assuming these people will mature into voters. But then we have states like Vermont, where I spend part of my time, uh, which has decided that uh, uh, you only have to be resident to vote. You don't have to be a US citizen. Um, so we are. Uh, we're in this transition into a world in which the, uh, uh, the people of America who created our institutions and our economy through their own entrepreneurial efforts is being physically replaced by people who are from the get-go uh, passive and willing to take whatever it is the government provides them by means of uh, food, housing, and and uh, even entertainment, since they're all given uh, iPhones and things like that. So uh, 
the entrepreneurial spirit not extinct, but endangered. Well, you're right about that. But I, uh, Peter, I'm gonna I'm gonna put a, a, a positive wrinkle into this uh, into this discussion, and I want to I want to get that in there. Um, I had a gentleman by the name of Chris Street, who is from Southern California, and uh, he also teaches at the college level in Southern California, and he says a lot of the young people. Uh, that he teaches are finally starting to get it and starting to realize that if they continue down the path that is being laid out for them by the universities, they're going to be in trouble. And they are actually starting to resist this stuff in a big way. And I, I will make the statement, I felt that we were uh, seeing the uh, tipping point of the radical left uh, swinging back the other way about a year and a half ago or two years ago. And I think the COVID experiment was the tipping point because when uh, people started to realize, wait a minute, more people are dying from the jab than they were from the uh, actual disease. And they had gone through this horrible experience of shutting down society. They couldn't go see their their grandmother in, uh, in the uh, old folks home because they were keeping people away. And all the things that happened were a transitional moment. And I think, I think we're actually uh, on the other side of that equation now and i think the pendulum is starting to swing back okay well i'll, I'll join you in being positive at least up to a point uh, i agree that the COVID was a turning point for a lot of people there was an awakening there that we had been uh, defrauded by the cdc and anthony fauci and others and um, the uh, moment came when a reckoning was really possible uh, now, I've been a bit disappointed that there's been so little follow through on that. Uh, Anthony Fauci is retired and is still called off to college commencements and treated as a, some kind of hero. Um, but certainly there has been um, a moment in which things which I could not have talked about publicly in the past have become uh, available. I can I can go off and give speeches to groups of hundred people, and that it, it works now in a way that it wasn't working a few years ago. So, you know, in my regular job as the president of the National Association of Scholars, I'm a kind of troublemaker for higher education, and for the most part, I'm not welcome on college campuses. Uh, I can live with that. I think that the uh, the changeover that is likely to happen in America is going to come uh, from outside the, the colleges and universities, but it will reach many students who are currently in colleges and universities. Now, when I say many, that's, that's a relative thing. Uh, this was a small fraction of the uh, student public a few years ago. It's a slightly larger faction, fraction today. Um, but it hasn't reached the point of being a breakout of uh, an all-out division of uh, uh, the college campus into those who get it and those who don't. 
There are groups like uh, Turning Point USA that are attempting to uh, organize the student resistance to political correctness or wokeness, as we're now calling it. Um, and you know, I wish them well. It, clearly, the numbers are there to create something like a mass movement if you look at it from a national scale. But if you go on to any individual college campus, especially ones that are you know, highly ranked in some form or another, you'll still find that the majority of students are uh, just content to conform themselves to uh, left-wing culture. Um, why is that? Well, there is a an element of this in which uh, the social media reinforce the conformity. And until we find a way to deal with uh, people getting their political education via TikTok or uh, via uh, Instagram, uh, we're going to be in the soup on this. Uh, I've got a, a young staff that does a pretty good job of using uh, Twitter, now X, as a way of uh, stirring things up. And it may be that we'll be able to use the uh, technology that the left has uh, used so brilliantly to propagandize its point of view, uh, to undermine that point of view. And uh, I, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic that we're getting there. We certainly have a great deal more capacity to have the kind of conversation that you and I are having that uh, than was possible just a few years ago. So maybe, maybe not for you. You've been at this a lot longer than I have. Um, I've been writing books and articles for the last 20 years in the hopes of getting somewhere on these things. But there are other signs of, uh, I won't go so far as to call it a renaissance, but some really important changes. This last year, we had the US Supreme Court hand down the decision in uh, Students for Fair Admission against Harvard and the University of North Carolina, in which they knock the pins out of the uh, racial preference regime, which has been the left's darling since 1978 when the uh, Supreme Court set it in motion. Um, colleges and universities across the country are absolutely determined to defy this decision and subvert it in every way they can think of. Um, but it doesn't mean that it's a meaningless decision. It means that uh, there will be follow-on court cases in which plaintiffs get the law uh, back into the courts to get it enforced, and that will happen. So uh, the change won't be instantaneous, but this is a momentous thing. And you know, my, my first published book was titled Diversity, the Invention of a Concept. That was published back in 2003. Um, and it was back then my call for an end to the diversity regime. Well, uh, 25 years later, uh, well, actually, <laughs> just 20 years later, mm -hmm. um, the, uh, that seems to be happening. We are, we're at the point in which the uh, racial preferencing uh, in higher education is breaking apart. Um, once again, all these things are related. You take away one of the keys of leftist domination of higher education, maybe you begin to unravel leftist domination of higher education as a whole. At least I'm hoping that's, that will be what happens. But right now, we have the best Supreme Court 
that we've had during my lifetime. Mm -hmm. And um, I expect there will be more good decisions. Maybe we will see that uh, carbon dioxide endangerment finding finally taken off the table. Um, there will be other steps that will be pro-freedom exercises. And we know that because the left is fighting so bitterly now to discredit the court. It has been their toy for the last 50 years, and suddenly it's no longer their toy, so they want to say it doesn't count anymore. Um, we're, we're dealing with a situation that has some fluidity to it. Things are changing, and they're changing in the direction that I think is good. Uh, the change is incremental, it's slow, but it is happening. Well, you're right, um, yeah, but uh, thank God our founders were so brilliant. Uh, they, they, they made this government, uh, if it follows the Constitution, um, it, it's a, a very, very difficult thing to get things done under our system of government. And the reason, it was meant that way. It was designed that way. It was designed so that you couldn't have these radical changes in our system of government, and that's what our Constitution and Bill of Rights is all about. Now, we've had some radicals in there. Certainly, uh, the Obama administration was very radical. Uh, people don't realize, I think, how radical it was and how truly uh, meaningful his uh, term that he was going to fundamentally transform America really was. But the fact is, he's serving his third term right now under China Joe, and he's just down the street a ways, as it were. But uh, I, I love the fact that you are what I would call a... Uh, a true skeptic, uh, because you, like me and many others who do a lot of reading, a lot of research, have come to the conclusion that a whole lot of what we've been uh, fed as truth over a period of years is nothing but hogwash, and uh, our reality is much different than the one they try to give us as our reality. Talk about being a, a true skeptic. <laughs> well, it's uh, kind of a tough question for me. <laughs> I, uh, I'm an anthropologist. I, I have a PhD in anthropology. And I, uh, uh, when I was an undergraduate student many years ago, I was the only anthropology major in my, my year at the school. And that was partly because the, it was a small school and the one professor of anthropology was a very formidable man, quite austere and uh, uh, he spoke very quietly, but you had to listen attentively. And he was kind of a take no prisoners fellow as well. Uh, it was a Quaker school, and people weren't used to so much um, intolerance of nonsense. So uh, I kind of modeled myself on him. I wanted to have that independence of mind that he showed up in a school that was conformist by nature. 
So uh, I think this is the place where I tell this, my, my origin story like they have in the comic books. I have an origin story. Um, I went to a small college outside Philadelphia called Haverford. And I had arrived there in the fall of uh, 1971. Um, I guess to the extent that I had political views, I was kind of liberal, but not well versed in much of anything. But three weeks into the fall semester, the Black Students Association of Haverford College announced that it was on strike. It was a very peculiar strike. They issued a one-page statement saying that they were not going to talk, say a word, to any white people until their demands were met. Okay, and what were those demands? They weren't going to tell us what their demands were because we should look to ourselves and know. Um, now, I don't know what real grievances the black students at uh, Haverford had at the time. I've had some guesses about it. But what happened next was what was transformative to me. In this uh, small college, there were 800 students altogether. The white students went absolutely crazy. Uh, the, down the hall in my residence hall, students took bed sheets and wrote on them in dripping red ink, I'm a racist, and they paraded around campus with those. This sort of hysteria of self-accusation, something we saw again in 2020, but this was many years before that. Uh, for the better part of a week, my fellow students, who I think were absolutely innocent of any drop of racism, saw themselves as being an oppressor class that needed to be humbled and brought down. It, it made me think of the Red Guard in, uh, in communist China at that point in their self-accusation sessions. Well, this went on, as I said, for the better part of a week. And then the administration intervened and called a, uh, a meeting of all the students, all the faculty, everybody in the one building on campus, which was large enough to fit everybody. It was called Roberts Hall. And uh, it was an old wooden structure. This happened to be a, uh, a hot Indian summer day, the first week of October. And uh, so it was mighty uncomfortable in there. This being a Quaker college, things are settled by consensus. And consensus in their terms meant 100% agreement. If there's one individual who cannot, in a heartfelt way, go along with everyone else, we stay put and we talk. So the proposition was put forward that we all had to agree that we were a racist institution, an individually racist. And we sat there for hours, hours and hours, because there were those of us who would not agree to this. Finally, I gave in, as did everybody else. And we reached consensus. We walked out of Roberts Hall. And on that day, at that moment, I became a conservative. I said liberalism was a lie. I was brought to this place thinking that this was going to be about the free exchange of ideas and being able to stand on your own conscience. But the first time this is put to the test, we're dragooned into enforced conformity. And that's what liberalism is going to do.
And that's what it did for the next four years. I saw it firsthand. I didn't have a whole lot of friends at Haverford College because I went my own way and I resisted almost every uh, invitation to conformism that they put up, the uh, 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 days in which the dining hall closed because there was a famine in Africa and we were going to solve the famine by uh, eating rice and beans ourselves. No, uh, that wasn't going to solve anything anywhere other than just create this uh, feel-good illusion that you're doing something when you're doing nothing. It was the equivalent of putting on a cloth mask in the midst of a viral epidemic. Um, and over the course of my life, I have seen this scenario play out again and again and again, in which um, the readiness of people to forfeit their rights to independent judgment in order to um, get along or to uh, feel that they're on the right side of a, uh, a historical situation when they're absolutely on the wrong side of it uh, has been the experience of my life. Now, I, I took that into everything I went on to do, and, and it wasn't always easy. Uh, anthropology is a field where politically it is pretty much on the left. Uh, I know other anthropologists who are like me, but uh, we're certainly just a tiny minority within the profession. Uh, I, I went into uh, the university and was among the fortunate few to make it all the way to tenure in my, my field, but uh, always with the sense that uh, I was being tolerated as this uh, uh, amusing uh, critter, somebody who uh, was a conservative in higher education, and not only that, in anthropology. Uh, it never really bothered me. Uh, I get along with people pretty well. Um, I like people. I'm not uh, a curmudgeon in these matters. And uh, no, right now I live in Upper West Side, which is one of the most uh, uh, liberal voting districts in the entire country. Uh, in my particular district, there are three registered Republicans. I'm one of them. Um, uh, so uh, being in the minority uh, has never felt uh, lonely to me. Uh, I can talk to people who believe all sorts of things quite the opposite of what I believe. Uh, I show them basic respect. And because I do, they tend to show me basic respect. I try to stay away from topics that I know are just going to uh, infuriate them because it doesn't help anything to infuriate people. But um, if any one of them were to uh, stop and look me up on, on the internet or read articles that I've written on uh, National Review or Spectator or the American Conservative, dozens of other places, or look at any of my books, they would say, they'd be aghast. But they don't bother looking because they view me as basically a nice guy and he does something in higher education, so what? Okay, um, that's, that's a world in which I can live. Um, but when it comes to making those key choices about how I wish to live, uh, their independence of mind to me is primary. Um, I do not want to be told what I must believe. I want to choose what I believe on the basis of the, the evidence and the arguments that are at hand. Uh, 
I'll, I'll proselytize to this much. People should try it. It's not as scary as it sounds. Uh, you have your, your God-given independence of mind. Uh, don't let it rot. Uh, put it to good use. Well, that's perfect. And, and we, we share a, a, a common friend in Dr. Michael Rechtenwald. I, I, I mentioned to you that uh, Michael's been a guest of ours uh, quite a few times, but uh, he, uh, he is the perfect example of someone who was a dyed-in-the-wool Marxist uh, when he was at NYU. He actually called himself uh, a Marxist, but when he started to challenge the groupthink idea and started talking about free speech zones and all these crazy ideas that he was starting to wonder about, uh, they made him an enemy of basically of the institution. And uh, he ended up being forced to resign, but he, he did it with full pension. And uh, they paid him his full pension, but they didn't want him at NYU indoctrinating these young minds with the idea that maybe they actually should have free speech. This is the kind of crap. And of course, his book, uh, Springtime for Snowflakes, is his epiphany of how that whole process worked. You, you, uh, you, you told me that you actually talked to him before he stuck his neck out and went into uh, the fray, as it were. Well, he had just begun to stick his neck out. There was a, a news report about a uh, professor at NYU who was getting himself into trouble by what he had said. And whenever I see news reports like that anywhere in the country, I do my best to get hold of the person. So I contacted him. He made clear at that point that he still thought of himself as a Marxist. And um, I invited him to write for my journal, Academic Questions, which he eventually did. Um, and you know, I've, I've had his books for quite a while now. So uh, I don't know where he ended up after he left NYU. So uh, maybe he's just enjoying retirement at this point. But I know other professors at NYU who are in similar situations. They find themselves ostracized now or under uh, uh, censure of various sorts from uh, the central administration. The usual tactic there has been to uh, use the students as a cat's paw. The, uh, the students are encouraged to rat out professors who say something in class that uh, is now uh, deemed uh, was it harmful or hurtful? And uh, then once those uh, complaints are registered, the uh, professor never gets to know who made the complaint. They, so they, they have no due process or ability to uh, respond by uh, challenging it or saying, where's the evidence that I did this or said that? Um, instead, the administration just uh, credits the accusation and you know it's a, a an Alice in Wonderland sort of thing where the verdict is handed down long before you know what you're accused of. So <laughs> you know, uh, I, I'm dealing with a uh, a case very much like that uh, right now uh, 
in Ohio where a professor named uh, Scott Gerber, law professor, uh, by far the most uh, accomplished man in his whole school, has been uh, given the bum's rush because he opposed his university's diversity, equity, and inclusion agenda. And uh, that, that case is going to court in a few weeks. But, um, you know, this is, this is something that's happening across the country. And again, if you're just a casual reader of newspapers, every now and then you'll see a snippet about a particular uh, incident at a particular campus. But I collect them, and there's hundreds of these, that the, uh, the end result of our era of wokeness has been the demonization of faculty members who won't get with the program, who, who have some silly idea that grades should be handed out on the basis of proven performance or that uh, faculty members should be hired on the basis of their scholarship and teaching, not their skin color. Um, the, uh, this is a uh, really profound problem and that uh, what we're watching is the woke regime replicating itself, making sure that uh, it can never be challenged because those who would be in the best position to challenge it have been chased off. Um, or if the chasing fails to succeed, then at least they have been uh, demonized and the students all know, don't listen to that professor, he's, he's a bad one. Um, so uh, Michael Rechtenwald is uh, a hero. He mm -hmm. uh, stood up when very few others were standing up, but uh, what happened to him continues to happen in many places. Well, he, he did, just so you know, he, uh, he is getting a full pension, but he's also writing books. He's written a half a dozen books on uh, various subjects, and they're doing quite well. He's actually making a, uh, uh, a fairly good living as a writer on top of being uh, a pensioner. But uh, you're, you're going to love this. He's running as the libertarian candidate. He's uh, running in the libertarian party, and he's running as a candidate for president. Uh, <laughs> and he was just on about a month ago. It, it, you know, it. You can't make this stuff up, but it certainly shows that there is life after academe. And if, uh, frankly, if people are like you and they have a strong opinion and they're afraid of what's going to happen to them if they speak out, uh, I think people need to start speaking out. They need to start expressing their disgust with a system that is not only not teaching, it's uh, it's lying about the things that it is teaching. And uh, it, it's time for good Americans to stand up. I think that's a, a lesson out of Michael Rechtenwald. But that being said, we, we've we got about uh, 20 minutes left. I would like to hear uh, your ideas about how we can not only identify all the creeps that are behind all this stuff, but how we can expose them and then how we can turn the system around. I'm sure you've got some ideas there. 
Well, um, I have a, a creative staff that spend a lot of their time working on this. Uh, part of it is exposing and part of it is proposing. So um, I have a, a, a really energetic young staff member named David Seiler, spelled like sailor, uh, who has uh, turned freedom of information requests into an art form. Uh, I'll share his secret, which is that you make these requests over relatively small, very carefully defined areas of inquiry. If you ask a university for what are your diversity policies, that's much too broad. So what he has done, and this is a, the example of the moment, he went to Ohio State University and having learned that the uh, university required diversity statements from all the faculty, all the candidates for faculty positions, uh, he asked for uh, copies of those diversity statements. Now that was specific enough that it couldn't have been evaded by saying, well, we don't know what you're talking about. So he ended up with 800 pages of diversity statements um, and the reports from the search committees that were dealing with those statements. And he wrote this up in the Wall Street Journal two weeks ago. It's just astonishing stuff. This is the exposure part of matters. So we learned that uh, candidates for positions in astrophysics and in areas of biology uh, were sorted out by basically by race. But uh, the way to do this was that if someone said in a diversity statement that, well, I believe in treating all people equally, they zeroed out. They didn't get any points for that at all. Uh, but if you said that you were in favor of undoing the history of white oppression in, in your field, uh, and here's what you were going to do to advance that agenda, then you got points. Now, points, what does that mean? Well, they divided the uh, candidates up on a system in which they got about a third of their points for the quality of their scholarship, a third of their points for the quality of their teaching, and a third of their points for their diversity statement, which if you zero people out on the diversity statement, it means they have no chance to get the job. Um, and it, it artificially elevated the weakest scholarly, academic, qualified candidates to the bottom of the pool and elevated those who were running on the basis of race. Mm. So Ohio State did this for years on end, and the president of the place uh, champions this as a great way to advance their uh, racial justice agenda. What we did was take something that the public might have had a vague suspicion of and showed down to the jot and tittle this is how DEI actually works. This is racial discrimination, 180 proof. Um, and it is something that leaves the legislatures in Ohio uh, facing a serious problem. Now there's a bill before 
the House there. It's already passed the Senate, Senate Bill 83, which will bring down the hammer on a lot of this DEI stuff. Uh, so their you know, solution, expose, expose the problem and do so in a way that is undeniable. Anyone with eyes to see can now see it um, and then provide a way in which it can be addressed. Now, um, you know, Michael Rechtenwald is a, a libertarian candidate. I have some libertarian sympathies of my own, but I've overcome them now with the feeling that higher education left to itself is never going to reform itself. It is now completely captive to the radical left. So where do we have capacity to force it back onto track? One thing that we have is the capacity with good hard effort to persuade state legislatures to do something about the public colleges and universities in their state. Can't reach the private ones, but those public ones we can through this avenue. So we put together, it's now well over 50 pieces of model legislation, which we are shopping around to state legislatures. Ohio is the one that's on the top of the list right now, but we're active in many states and we're trying to get that stuff established. Now, we spent part of the conversation earlier talking about K-12 education. Uh, it's inhabited by legions of unionized bad teachers, and uh, there uh, we are also in play trying to come up with bills that will uh, reform the curricula in these states, reform teacher licensure, uh, open up the system up to more genuine competition. We like charter schools, we like private schools, we like homeschooling. Anything that will break the leftist monopoly over access to children uh, is good in our view. And I'm, I'm not searching for deep consistency on this. What I, what I wanna do is hammer the system apart to create some opportunities for better thoughts to emerge and let's, Let's see what emerges when we have genuine competition for the dollars that Americans are willing to spend to see their children educated. So we're working on the K-12 side as well, and that's crucial until we make sure that students graduate from high school actually knowing something, including something of the nation's history, uh, we're not really going anywhere. We have created something called the Civics Coalition in which we are working with uh, more than two dozen other organizations. We're, we've organized this and have been uh, leading it for the last several years, trying to get uh, the reestablishment of traditional civics. Well, civics is a battleground area in uh, education right now. The, the uh, left considers civics their own thing. That goes back to the Obama years when President Obama commissioned and received a study called uh, uh, a crucible moment in which he said uh, that uh, the old civics in which you learned about the American Revolution and the presidents, that sort of thing, that's all old hat. What we now need is a new civics that's based on the recognition that we are global citizens, chew on that one for a while, uh, that we need to involve ourselves in the sustainability movement and open up the uh, minds of the young ones to social justice. So uh, since then, the left has loved the idea of civics as another avenue into 
control over the minds of the young. We think that the old civics, which prepared people to be active citizens in a free self-governing republic, needs to be restored. And we put forth a curriculum to do just that and are working hard to get it established in states around the country. Um, federal government really has no proper role in this. The Constitution leaves education to the states and the localities, and that's where we think it belongs. Of course, it was under Obama that we got the Common Core, which was a way to avoid the uh, uh, Constitution on this and give the Federal Department of Education the, uh, the whip hand as to what actually gets taught. Well, the Common Core uh, is still officially around, but it has become so discredited in the eyes of the American public that they don't even want to talk about it anymore. It's, uh, it's a kind of dead letter at this point, and the time is ripe for citizens to once again say, we're the ones in charge of what should be taught in our schools. So that's another step we're taking. Uh, on this, uh, you know, I should say what what my organization officially does is we go out and get grants from uh, foundations to do studies, and then we build these studies uh, into long form reports on things, and then break the reports down into pieces and try to get them aired wherever there's an opportunity to, like your show. And uh, the end result of that, of course, is to come up with a positive proposal to fix the things that we think are broken. So another thing that we think is broken is the way the scientific establishment works. And I've got uh, some retired scientists who work for me on this. We're trying to say that, you know what? Science doesn't really need higher education. Higher education needs the scientists more than they need it. That is, you can go off and do legitimate science in your own lab someplace or working for an industry. There are plenty of places that good science could get done. Uh, Sir Isaac Newton didn't need a, a university grant to get his work done, or hardly any of the other major figures in the history of science. So why is it in America that science has become a sub-enterprise of the university? Well, it's because that's where the government money comes and when it comes, the universities get a big cut of it. So uh, our master plan here, we call it our Prometheus project, is to steal the sciences away from the universities and return them to the private sector. Um, many parts of that, but one of them that I've alluded to several times is that we're trying to expose the way in which science is corrupted by government money and by the capture of individual scientists who find that they can make a better living parroting whatever the, uh, the EPA or the Food and Drug Administration or other bodies want them to say than going out and doing original and genuine research on their own. So there's the science piece of it. Um, we are really, really concerned about the influence of foreign totalitarian regimes on the US. We're the folks who broke the story about Confucius Institutes from anyone. Oh, you are? Yes. We, uh, back around 2014 or 15, I got a call from one of my members who said that his university was about to launch one of these and did I know what it was. At the time, I did not know, but I put one of my staff members on it 
And a year and a half later, we produced a report on this that uh, was very well received in the Chinese American community because we were blowing the whistle on Confucius Institutes as a Chinese Communist Party effort to infiltrate our universities. Um, and then nothing happened for about six months until we got a call from the State Department, one from the FBI, uh, members of Congress had picked up on it. And suddenly this was a hot ticket. Ever since then, we have been the go-to place for information on how the Chinese Communist Party has been infiltrating American higher education, stealing our intellectual property, uh, subverting our faculty members, and so on. That's, that's a whole two-hour conversation all by itself. But having discovered what was going on there, we then turned our attention to some other areas. Uh, more recently, we've been working on uh, uh, Cotter, or however you say that, <laughs> strangely. Qatar or Qatar. Yeah, yeah. Um, which has likewise been pouring a lot of money in the billions into American higher education without anybody noticing. And we're wondering, why is that? What's it, why are they? They're not really here to steal our technology. What are they doing? Um, well, we're getting some hints of that now that we see that the leaders of Hamas are uh, living in a luxury hotel in that little middle, middle eastern kingdom and um the uh, this is a this is a concern let us say iran is investing in american higher education look around the world and find a bad actor and there's chances are that that bad actor is well liked on american college and university campuses uh, there's a kind of natural attraction between college presidents and rich dictators and uh, wow. the only rich dictator I know that hasn't uh, availed himself of this opportunity is the head of North Korea, but uh, maybe he's just too proud to uh, become the godfather of an American college or university. Um, ask why these institutions so often and regularly fail to defend US from its named enemies, uh, its adversaries, why it is so willing to engage in uh, what it calls a global education and a willingness to engage in uh, cross-cultural stuff. It's because they reap huge amounts of money from these associations. Yeah, there's an ideological component to it as well. They like communists wherever they find them, but they also like to get rich, which is not a contradiction at all, since that's what <laughs> communists always do. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, that's the uh, short form of uh, uh, what we're up to. Um, there probably isn't a controversial issue in American higher education in which we are not involved at some level, some more than others, but um, uh, our effort has been to, uh, over the uh, 40-year history of the organization, we started as a reform organization. We thought what it would take to get colleges and universities back up to snuff would be simply reminding them of their responsibilities and calling in the senior scholars who do how a university should be run. Um, that was a miscalculation on the part of my predecessors, uh, I, a well-meaning one, but the miscalculation was that those senior professors who 
uh, had been the guiding lights of their institutions were on their way to retirement and the new generation coming in was not on board. So uh, just as we were founded in 1987, the rise of uh, the diversity movement and other forms of uh, really hardcore leftist control of the universities was on the rise. So in the uh, 15 years I've been president of the National Association of Scholars, I, I've completely turned from the idea that we could expect higher education to reform itself. That it was simply a matter of pointing out where you're going wrong and steering back to the mainstream. No, uh, if we're gonna change things, it's going to be by outside pressure. And that raises the question, where are the outside pressure points? One of them is legislative, uh, both at the federal and state level. One of them is the alumni who keep uh, imagining that the institutions they are donating to were the ones they attended many years before, but in fact, all they do are subsidizing the, uh, the, the black studies, women's studies, queer studies agenda. Um, the other area in which there is a huge vulnerability for higher education, I alluded to it, is the use of federal grants. Now, higher education without federal money would be a shell of what it is now. The uh, Most students attend college, do so on the basis of uh, loans and grants that are government-backed through the Department of Education, Pell Grants, Title IV student loans. Uh, most of the research is conducted through the National Science Foundation and National uh, Institutes of Health and, and so on. All of these are points where if we had a serious government in Washington, they could say, cut it out or the dollars stop. You'd get no more eligibility to take Title IV student grants. Uh, we're going to eliminate uh, the Pell program. Uh, we could do all sorts of things which would uh, overnight stop higher education's descent into uh, the red-green madness that currently is its uh, uh, order of business. Uh, certainly not going to happen with our current leadership in Washington. Uh, I'm not endorsing any political candidates, I repeat, or parties. I'd be happy if uh, uh, any party, Libertarian, Green, Independent Party came along and managed to accrue enough power to uh, uh, steer things in DC in the direction I'm talking about. But really, the only way you change higher education is to strangle the money supply. And all these other bills that I've been talking about, they are steps in the right direction. But the real right direction is to turn off that spigot and make sure that our institutions are responsive to the needs of the American people rather than the woke leftists who currently run the show. That's an excellent uh, summary, Peter. Uh, thank you for, for doing that. Thank you for being our guest. Um, 
your website uh, where, where they can find more about the National Association of Scholars, uh, your, your website and your information. Do you want to share that with our uh, viewers and our listeners? Sure. Our, our website's a very simple one. It's nas.org and Nancy Adams, Sam, National Association of Scholars, nas.org. Um, we have a parallel website uh, called uh, Minding the Campus, which is mindingthecampus.com, Minding the Campus, all one word. Um, um, and, you know, there's other pieces there that you'll wander into. We have a Minding the Sciences uh, startup website, and our uh, Civics Coalition now has its own website, too. So uh, our family of websites is all attainable through the National Association of Scholars. I said we produce lots of very long-form reports and some short ones, too. Uh, those are all linked on our website. Everything we do is uh, free and available to the public. Uh, we have limited copies of this stuff in print as well, if people want to get in touch with me. And uh, I will uh, uh, do the daring thing of putting my actual uh, uh, personal uh, uh, email site out there for people or recite my email address, which is pwood at nas.org. And uh, I, if you write to me, I can't promise that I will respond. Uh, I get many, many emails, more than I can uh, possibly answer, but I do my best to answer them. And the more answerable they are, the more likely they will be answered. Uh, mm -hmm. If you just want to tell me what a great guy I am, I probably won't answer you, but I appreciate it. <laughs> well, Peter, uh, and, and we are out of time, but for people who have uh, children in a private uh, school, like a Christian school, what would you recommend the most direct course that they can follow to get the scholarship uh, to, to listen to your message? Is it to send to you and ask for manuscripts? Do you have a particular manuscript that you would like to send them to at your nas.org site? Um, I, I get the question all the time to help um, people in that position. I don't have a completely standardized answer because every individual faces a uh, unique set of circumstances. So if you write to me about it, I will do my best to give you a constructive answer. But if I have to give a broad brush answer at this point, uh, it would be, don't go. Uh, that is, there's perfectly good ways to get ahead in life without subjecting your child right now to the dangers days more likely than not will be deep personal alienation, psychological fragility, which is actually taught and cultivated, uh, hostility to home and family and church and God. Um, there are, of course, exceptions. You can find colleges that stand outside that range of uh, institutions, but they're relatively few, uh, and many of them are in bad financial shape. So you might want to consider alternatives to higher education but if you're of the view that your child must go to Harvard or Yale or Princeton and they can get in, 
Well, you better uh, shockproof them first. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, I'm a, a big believer and a big uh, supporter of uh, Hillsdale College. That's certainly one that you can get a real education. Uh, so. Absolutely. Well, Peter, thank you so much for being our guest. I'm going to stay in touch with you. If you don't mind, I'm going to uh, contact you again here shortly and um, uh, send you some information, some people who may be able to help you with your efforts to expose what the university system is doing. And um, I'll, I'll do my best because this is a very honorable thing. What you are doing, the National Association of Scholars, is absolutely an essential part of this country. God bless you, my friend, for being the president for all those years. Thank you for having me. God bless you, too. From the lakes of Minnesota To the hills of Tennessee Across the plains of Texas Oh, from sea to shining sea From Detroit down to Houston And New York to L.A. Where there's pride in every American heart And it's time we stand and say Today.